Amen. Well, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's right after Colossians. It's right before the Timothys. 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll read 13 to 18. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Now, hopefully it's your tradition during this Christmas season to give gifts to one another. And we, uh, some, some people open gifts on the 24th, some do it on the 25th. And we do that because Jesus was given to us as a gift by the Father. We do that because gifts were brought to Mary and Joseph. And there's a lot of gifting going on during this time. So we commemorate that. Um, we commemorate God's gift to us through the giving of gifts. And, and we remember and have in the back of our heads John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave as a gift his only begotten son. And so on Christmas Day and during the Advent season, we celebrate with the giving of gifts because the Son of God was given for our salvation 2,000 years ago or so. And when he arrived, men brought to him gifts. And Jesus came into the world you remember, to redeem, to save. He came into the world to fix. He came into the world to fix what was broken. He came into the world, he came into a sin-saturated world to become sin for a sinful people. And that is what the word Advent means. The word comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming. He came. And as we think about that first Advent at Christ's incarnation, we can easily slip into just a, a nostalgic mindset um, because of the way we celebrate holidays. And this is the season of nostalgia, right? We all know that. It's not all bad. Um, but it has dangers associated with it. Nostalgia can, is not bad, but it, it can be dangerous. Um, Christmas, you know, music makes us, you know, that makes no sense at all, um, at least makes us think of our childhood, 
right? And warm days gathered with the family. Our Christmas trees make us revisit those happy winter nights anticipating Christmas Day. It's all very nostalgic. And, and nostalgia is, is a longing for the past, right? You understand what nostalgia is. It's a longing for the past. Or I would say it's a longing for an idealized or romanticized past. You wish the past was the present. That's, that, that's nostalgia. Nostalgia is wistful longing to have now what was good in the past or what we think was good in the past, the memories that we we manipulate to make the past seem better than it may have actually even been. At various points in their history, the Israelites got nostalgic. They got nostalgic for the pots of garlic and meat in Egypt, right? Remember, they're through going through the wilderness and, and there's nothing to eat other than this, this cursed manna that appears every day by the grace of God. And they long to, to have some meat and some garlic and go back into Egypt. But what, what did they forget about? It was certainly a romanticized and idealized remembrance of Egypt, wasn't it? Because in Egypt, they were in slavery. In Egypt, they had a heavy yoke placed upon them. And yet, being nostalgic, all they remember is the garlic and the meat, And so it's very easy for you and me to think of the happiest days of our lives, our childhood, vacations, our high school days, our college days, our honeymoon, whatever, and wish that we had that identical joy today. And the end result, if we continue to live that way, if we continue to look back rather than to look forward, is we just clamor for nostalgia. And when we clamor for nostalgia, we refuse to look at what lies ahead. Okay. We live in the past. And, and there's, there, there are reasons to build memorials. There are reasons to, I mean, the, the people of Israel were told to, to remember the Passover every year, right? And so there are reasons to, to, um, to look back. But um, it's easy to to, for discontentment to envelop us when we live in the past and long for nostalgia. Today, you guys know, can't ever compete with an idealized past. It just can't. In all of Advent, all of the Christmas season, we think back on those days in Bethlehem. How sweet and how mild and how gentle and how beautiful and how calm. We romanticize it, even the coming of Jesus. And, the, and, and we don't think upon the fact that, think of the amazing change of status for the Son of God. And how awful it would have been for the glorious, eternal Son of God to travel down the birth canal of His mother. You know, but we've romanticized it. We've, we've cleaned it up in our minds. We romanticize the coming of Jesus. And in the midst of a fallen world racked with pain and war and disease and struggle, those days are what we want now. And most of the Christmas songs we sing just embolden our nostalgia. And we forget the part about the Christmas story where, where Herod 
ordered the execution of hundreds of children under the age of two. We forget the utter humiliation the Son of God was enduring in order to take on the likeness of sinful flesh. We block out the warfare that Jesus entered, the declaration of war that was announced in the incarnation that culminated in the, the winning of the war, right? the death of death in his resurrection. The problem with nostalgia, brothers and sisters, is that a wistful longing for the past causes us to ignore what is coming. Live your life with a nostalgia, nostalgic longing and you will find that you can't recreate the wonders of the past and you, the delights of the past are not, not quite what they are in your mind and you will stop looking forward to the better that is to come. Now that's what I want to focus on this morning is, is the advent, the first advent is glorious. It boggles the mind. But there's another Advent. There's another Advent. And so I, I want to talk about looking back. I want to talk about looking forward. But I also want to talk about a particular way we need to look forward. Christians are not to live in just a, a romanticized view of the past. What is to come is far more glorious than even the glory of the first Advent. Okay? It is everlasting. It is, not, it is not Jesus coming in on a rescue mission. It is the mission having been completed and there being you know, fallenness and sin and the world and the temptation and the devil being done. That's what happens at the next Advent. Um, Yes, God is gracious and gives us good gifts in this life, but the life that is to come in His presence will give us the right perspective on all the brokenness of the best things here. You know when you're sick, and you've been sick for a long time, and then you get healthy, you finally realize how sick you were, right? Once you feel healthy, you look back and you're like, man, it wasn't so bad when I was in it, but now looking back, it was horrible, right? That's sort of, we're so, sin is such a part of us, and it's sin is the context we live in. When we are set free from it at that second advent, we'll look back and we'll think, how awful, how awful all of that pain was, all of that sin, all of that, in, that, that rebellion that was in my heart. Well, it, just, it will seem that much more awful at that point. The Apostle Paul had the right perspective and one that I want us to think about. Paul wrote this to the Philippian church. He said, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, he, he's, he's pressing on, he, he want, he's reaching forward, he wants that which lies ahead, he's not just wistful about the past. Heaven's joys will far surpass those of earth. There will be no sin and no suffering, and there will be no taint of sin and suffering in the good things we enjoy in heaven. We, we can't even conceive of such lack of taint, right? Such glory, Scripture describes for us. 
but live nostalgically, and you'll find yourself saying, now, oh, the good life. Ah, oh, the good life. You know, and you'll, you'll live for fine things in this world, right? And, and you'll, you'll, you'll put your feet up, and you'll, you'll proclaim everywhere you go, it doesn't get much better than this. That's the nostalgic life. That's the life looking back. Interestingly, it is not only the nostalgic who don't have the proper perspective, but there are some who only look forward but miss the forest for the trees. Okay, so now I'm pivoting and talking about those who look forward. They look forward, but they do so without any anticipation of Christ's second advent. They look forward, but it's, it's not focused on Jesus will return. They think it lies 10,000, perhaps millions of years in the future that that's going to happen. They may be looking in the right direction, but they're not looking for Christ's appearing, as we are instructed to do in Titus. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's interesting. He has past, present, and future all in that verse, right? Past, he brought salvation. In the present age, we live in godliness, and we look forward for the blessed hope and the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So past, present, and future there. Now, not only is it not wrong to long for the consummation of the ages and our dwelling in heaven, and the return of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. There are certain eschatologies that mock that kind of longing. Um, They call that kind of longing for Jesus to come today, they call it Gnostic. They call it pietistic sort of spirituality. They call it a forsaking of the kingdoms of this world. They call it a forsaking of the Great Commission. This is wrong. That is to weaponize eschatology. Certain kinds of post-millennialists, and if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, post-millennialists just means that the world becomes more and more Christian and then Jesus comes at the end of it, okay? Um, certain kinds of post-millennialism in the end, forbid us thinking about anything other than this world and her institutions and how we as God's people are going to make them better. Because after all, the world must be Christianized before Christ comes again. And rather than understanding Christ's second advent, as the mechanism of instantaneous reformation of every institution and every nation and every government, they disallow such anticipation and focus on their own works that will lead to the slow reformation of all of these governmental institutions. So all along the way, those kinds of post-millennialists 
like to say that if you don't think and work and interpret as they do, you are pessimistic and Gnostic and pietistic and fatalistic and faithless. Well, that's pretty harsh. That's a pretty harsh accusation that many post-millennialists have brought against many other Christians. It's hard for me to see how someone who thinks the next big thing is Christ's return, along with the instantaneous reformation of all the entire creation and her order, is pessimistic in the least. And hard for me to understand how looking forward to that cataclysm could lead us now to any place other than stirring up our zeal to share the gospel with people. Christ is coming again. Turn to Him. But I say, don't let those reconstructionist post-millennialists take away your joy and your anticipation of Christ's return, which I assert is the next big thing. That's pietism. You're forsaking the Great Commission to say that. That's what they say. And I say, don't let them despiritualize everything in Scripture and immunitize it and concretize it. Right? Here's a friend of mine who was writing on this. And I, and I you know, I, I'm picking on post-millennialists because it's very popular right now. It's the soup du jour of eschatologies. It's the eschatology that every young man embraces. Okay? And, there's a, and, and I am not opposed to post-millennialism in general. I'm opposed to a certain kind, the reconstructionist kind, okay? Give me the revivalistic post-millennialism of previous ages and I'm with you, right? That God could sweep his spirit through this nation, reform the, all, all the hearts of all the people, and suddenly everything would change and then he could return. Okay, that's fine. That post-millennialism is good. But the post-millennialism that says that we need to create a Christian government and a Christian society before Christ comes back is bunk. It's wicked. It's unhelpful. And it's unhelpful for the reasons I'll go into. Postmillennialism can only create the impression of having a more victorious narrative if it limits that narrative to this age. Postmillennialism is actually the most pessimistic view on the menu. This is from a friend of mine. Because it puts off the most victorious part of the story, the part where believers in creation are made new so that they no longer groan at all in order to create space for a certain narrative of victory in this age. The most optimistic view one can have looking forward is one that has this age reaching its climax, Christ's return, sooner rather than later. The narrative of victory told by the Old Testament prophets included events that will only happen in the age to come. We should include the whole narrative when we're evaluating the more or less victorious options on the eschatological menu. Any option that necessarily defers the most victorious part of the story cannot be the most optimistic option. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's true. 
Believers who truly desire victory in God's creation are those who wait expectantly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, at the return of Christ, and therefore those who love his appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. My pastoral concern is that postmillennialism lacks the New Testament's eschatological expectancy. It dispenses with Advent, too. It dispenses with it. It can't say that Advent is coming. It can't say there's a coming. In fact, post-millennialism of the Reconstructionist grain can't even say Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, because the signs aren't there. We need more time. It can't even pray the most basic prayer of the early church, Maranatha. Because the institutions of the world have to be turned to Christ. It trains hearts to love and imagine and long for and expectantly wait for the greatest victory imaginable in this age, more so than the infinitely greater victory in the age to come. The post-millennial hope shifts hearts away from our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so what I'm saying is during this Advent season, don't be nostalgic about the past, right? In a way that you just want to sort of recapture the vibes of your childhood. And they kind of have something to do with Jesus. And don't look forward in the pessimistic way that, that the post-millennialists look forward and can't even say, Lord, come. All they can say is we got to make the United States of America a Christian nation. But they can't have Jesus come before that happens. Oh, come on. Come on. Maranatha, we pray, and we look for his appearing. That is what we long for. And why do we long for that? And why is that important? Because longing for Jesus' return makes us watchful. It makes us watchful. It makes us live in godliness. It doesn't fill us with pride. It, it puts the fear of God into us and makes us watchful and makes us zealous to, to warn our neighbors, come to Christ, he's coming again, and you won't like his appearing this time. It's not going to be like the first time. And it could be today. It could be today. So we don't look back in a nostalgic way and we look forward, but only in the proper way. We don't get caught up in the past and we don't halt our Maranatha prayers until the institutions of this world are reformed. In our, if our view of this life is that it was or is spectacularly good or that it was will be spectacularly good at some point. We do not have our minds set on things above. Indeed, we may not truly appreciate what God has in store for those who are His through faith in Jesus Christ. We live as if this life is all we want in keeping with this his short-sightedness, we must have our joy here and now. We must have our relationships here and now. Our sensations, our entertainments must be here and now. Our victories 
here and now, our comforts here and now. We build storehouses for our treasures and fill them with the hopes and desires of this world. And heaven is a long, 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 long way off. It's very theoretical. We'll not wait to have that which is within reach. And so let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We lift our cups with the atheist and sing the refrain in harmony. Even when Israel was told to memorialize and remember what had happened to them in the past, it was to strengthen them to depend on God's faithfulness for the future. Right? It was not nostalgia. Considering the shortness of this life compared to eternal life, not a million or a trillion years, but innumerable, unending years. Why can't we live as if we have a fixed, wonderful destination and a glorious and unending feast for our souls just ahead of us? Why are we loath to allow that which is to come and the glories and comforts of the new heavens and new earth and the contemplations of our eternal home? Why are we so loath to have that shape how we live and think and plan and wait now? We so love that which is broken and half-baked and, and tainted. And yet, what does God say? Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And Jesus said, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. The nostalgic don't hate their life in this world, do they? No, they're just trying to make it great by macking on the Christmas cookies. So what lies ahead? What lies ahead? The remembrance of Christ's first advent should be much deeper than simplistic nostalgia. We think back to to Jesus' first coming, and our minds should reflexively be sort of launched forward into his second coming. Okay? Here's what that second coming is described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage we read. Right? Notice the contrast between the first and the second advent. Whereas the first was understated, quiet even, the second is nothing of the sort. Right? Very different Jesus descends from heaven with a shout. Literally, the Greek word means a cry of command. He is, it is a cry of war. Cry. Luther called it a war cry. It is Jesus as the general of the armies of God and the creator of every man issuing a stern command. We don't know the words of this command, but this is the backdrop. This is the scene from the passage from this passage in Revelation, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is going to be a loud war cry. Accompanying his commands, there is the voice of the archangel. I do not know what that sounds like. But everywhere in the book of Revelation where an angel speaks, it says they speak with a loud voice, a mega voice. Right? And in addition to that, in addition to the voice of the archangel, is the trumpet of God. I mean, trumpets are loud. Right? Have you ever been to a, 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 a jazz concert? And you got a big band up there, and the trumpets are just absolutely piercingly loud. They cut through all the other parts of a jazz orchestra. And that, those trumpets blaring, but God's trumpet must be really loud. In Matthew 24, 31, we read about this trumpet, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. In the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets given to the seven angels, each pronouncing judgment upon the earth. Here, though, the trumpet is God's trumpet. And so the first advent announces peace, a Savior, the the graciousness and mercy of of the, the loving Father, peace upon earth. The God of wrath, angry at man's sin, enters into the world in a stable as a man. This was, in fact, the winning of the war. He won the war there. And the second advent proclaims a final battle on the nations and peoples who do not bow their knee to the second Adam, born of a woman and risen from the dead. And the enmity and strife and warfare will come to an end by the scorching judgment of the Son of God. Peace is no longer announced. Peace is enforced by the Son of God. The infant Jesus who was swaddled in cloths and laid in a manger, the Jesus who lived among a sinful people and healed their diseases and spoke of his Father's glory, the Jesus who had his arms lifted into the air on the cross, bleeding, suffering, gasping for breath. The Son of God, forsaken by the Father, comes again in the future. And he who had asked that the cup be taken from him, but went forth and drank the cup of God's wrath, now treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and gives that vintage, that vintage from him pressing those grapes he gives to the whore Babylon to drink. And rather than a star announcing his quiet birth, drawing man to him, the second coming of Jesus will cause those who do not know him to run and hide. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, who is able to stand? 
Here's the glory. When Jesus comes, the dead in Christ and those who are still alive in Christ will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so they shall always be with the Lord. Those who are in Christ are able to stand. Those that that absolutely cataclysmic blast of noise that comes with Jesus coming will not will not cause Christians to run and hide. They'll be able to stand. That fearsome day I just described as the day of glory for God's people. Rather than calling for the mountains to fall on them and hide, His presence, God will be just will call them up to Himself. Come. Come be with me and forever stay with me. Forever stay here. They're not hiding. They're coming to Him where they will remain forever. They will, they're, they're, they will abide in God's love forever. Those who have placed their hope of eternal salvation in the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, will stand in the judgment, clothed in Christ's righteousness, and they will, be, they will then begin their life living in heaven, a world of love. At peace, at rest. Knowing these things lie ahead, the Apostle Paul in verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Paul commends comfort coming from looking forward to what lies ahead. Not by being nostalgic about the past. Not by delaying the Maranatha for 10,000, 10 million, 10 trillion years. This is the life of the Christian, looking forward to what lies ahead, living for the imminent return of Jesus Christ always, being watchful for his appearing, preparing, in fact, for that return and warning our children and our neighbors to be prepared. You know, this life isn't about Netflix. Jesus is going to return, and it's going to be a day like none of you have ever ever even imagined could occur. What difference does it make looking back or looking forward? One, those who look back think there is much glory in the things of this earth. Those who look forward think the only glory, however much glory this world has given them, is what lies ahead. Those who look back will never be satisfied. Present sufferings will only make the past seem that much more glorious. And so we can almost make an idol, idol out of the past when we didn't have those aches and pains and hadn't lived through the sins and the, that we've suffered. But the past is past. Those who look forward know that their suffering is powerful in preparing them for heaven. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those are eternal. Third, those who look forward, but without any anticipation of the second coming, get all wrapped up in this world.
Postmillennialism deprives the church of the imminent expectation of Christ's return and so undermines the quality of watchfulness that is incumbent upon the church. In other words, the most difficult words in the Reconstructionist postmillennial world are Maranatha, come Lord. That is precisely what they can't allow unless every bit of Maranatha was fulfilled in AD 70, which is an awful lot of weight for AD 70 to bear. Watchfulness in, in this eschatological paradigm is unnecessarily only political action to redeem the state. That if I understand things correctly, and no post-millennialist would say I do, that is truly depressing. I might even say that is thoroughly pessimistic. No, no, don't come back, Jesus. We have to redeem the state. Oh, <laughs> Kill me. Those who look back will not pursue God in his holiness. There's a fundamental denial of the good of sanctification or the delight of growth and holiness by those who want to, to return to the past. You really want what you had in high school? Romance. <laughs> Romance. Those who think this world has offered them something truly lasting are miserably short-sighted. To pursue the past is, in most cases, to pursue what merely feels good. Or it is to pursue what we remember as feeling good. Those who, do, those who look forward, thinking upon Christ's amazing, powerful return, will be zealous not for earthly treasure, not for earthly vibes, but solely for heavenly treasure and, and to live in His presence because he's there, that would be the joy of your life. And therefore, you live in such a way as to gain that reward. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what will be. We know that, what, what, that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So those who look forward, hoping in Christ, hoping to see him as he is, actually spend their time purifying themselves, getting ready to be that bridegroom. Those who look back, those who live for the past, will not be prepared when Jesus returns. They will not live circumspectly. Those who live for Jesus' return will live in such a way as to be ready. They will live soberly. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark... And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been 
on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Those who live a nostalgic life will be the most unhappy of all. Jesus calls us to hate even our present lives. Those who, in a sense, despise the past, who despise the now, but who look to the great day forward, the Lord, the second advent, will be filled with joy through, though slogging through this fallen world. Right? Think of the best things of this life and contrast them with this happiness described in the last chapter of the Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Ah. Oh. Ah. Oh. So this year during your Advent and Christmas traditions, think forward. Think forward. Think forward to Jesus coming. Jesus' second Advent. And live accordingly. That will make every day just like Christmas Eve. Every day will be like that, right? Fierce anticipation of what lies ahead and what the next big thing to come will be. But look forward with great longing for Christ's appearing. And call for Him to come. Sing those Maranathas to Him. Call for Him to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe that you are even mindful of us. Because we are sinful, we have sinned, we have inherited sin, we are guilty, we are polluted. And Father, we, we are worthy to be judged. And yet you sent your Son... And he died and rose. And you've told us that he's going to come again. And we will be gathered together with him like, like, a, like a shepherd gathering his lambs. And we will be there forever with him. And so, Father, I pray that this truth, that Jesus is coming again, would motivate our lives, would fill our lives with glorious anticipation, would give us perseverance through the, the drudgery, the, the veil of tears that we live in now, and that we would show forth our happiness, our joy to all others, longing for that time when sin is eradicated and Jesus reigns, and there will be no more enemies that can molest us in any way. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.